going to start this morning in second, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be looking at several chapters in 1 Corinthians, and then we're also going to be jumping over to Galatians 5 and Romans 8, so feel free to put a finger in one of those or a bookmark or something, we'll get to that later uh, as we move through the sermon. Um, but this morning, we want to continue to, to look at the Holy Spirit. We've been in this new series, Holy Spirit Come, talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, how He moves in our lives, how He moves in the church, and how we can be a part of that, how we can join Him in what He's doing. And we want to look at that again today um, by talking about the evidences of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I hear that word evidence, I tend to think about, like, the judicial system, right? Like evidence in a, in a trial. And we have this long-standing, um, you know, principle in our judiciary system of innocent until proven guilty, right? That you are innocent of any crime, any wrongdoing, until someone can show proof, can show evidence that you indeed did that crime, and then therefore goes uh, the trial. But in today's internet world that we live in, um, there's always another court that's open, and that's the court of public opinion, right? Um, and in that court, it doesn't seem like evidence is all that important. Um, there's not a lot of facts or proof needed. It's just um, if you have an emotional gut-wrenching, well-told story, then people will listen and then they make a judgment based on their opinion and their emotions of what you said. And if, a, if the majority decide one way or the other, then that's guilty or innocent without any major burden of proof, right? Based on emotions, based on experiences, based on just how we see the world. And what I've noticed is that in the church, I think for many years, a lot of people have approached the Holy Spirit with that same mentality. They base their understanding of the Holy Spirit and their, their, their proof of the Holy Spirit on emotions, on experiences, on stories, rather than on actual evidence, biblical evidence, of who He is and how He works and what He does. And so today, I want us to dig into what is the biblical evidence for the Holy Spirit and how can we see that in our lives, in our church, and so forth this morning? So as we dive in, I want you to, to ponder this question. Where do I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Where do I see evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? You personally, not anyone else, not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your kids. Just introspective this morning, looking for that evidence. So before I get to the evidence of the Holy Spirit from the Bible, first I want to address some non-evidences of the Holy Spirit. Things that oftentimes people will point to as evidence, but as we're going to see from Scripture, actually aren't necessarily proving or evidence of the Holy Spirit at all. And the first one is by far the most controversial, so we're just going to jump right in the deep end this morning, um, speaking in tongues. So let's look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and see what Paul says about this practice. Look at verse 27. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then he goes on. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. 
There's a lot in there, but I want you to notice he starts in verse 27 calling us the body of Christ. He's talking to the body of Christ here. And the body of Christ is basically all believers. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ and has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, as we talked about earlier on in the series, you are part of the body of Christ. Okay? And here he says that the body of Christ, that we are all in one body because we have all been baptized in one spirit. So having that joint baptism in the Holy Spirit brings us into one body of Christ. And then earlier in chapter 12, he's explaining that that same Holy Spirit that we receive at salvation gives us various gifts of the Spirit. Different gifts to different people. Okay? And one of those gifts is speaking in tongues, which Paul addresses in this chapter and in the following chapters. So I want to point out a few things about speaking in tongues this morning. Number one, it's not a primary gift of the Spirit. Here's what I mean by that. Look at the text there. Paul gives this long list here of gifts and works of the Spirit, and tongues is in there. But notice, it's at the end of the list, right? He even kind of numbers them. He says, first comes apostles, second comes prophet, third comes teachers. And so he's saying all the teaching gifts, the gifts that help us understand God's Word, those are first, because the primary task for us as believers is to understand what has God said and how do I follow that. So, so those come first, and then he lists some other gifts that serve the church in various ways. And at the very end, he gets to tongues. Okay? So it is a spiritual gift. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to come out thinking that it's a bad thing or that it's a wrong thing. It's a gift of the Spirit, but it's not primary. Okay, we see from this list. If you keep reading in the next chapter, in chapter 13, the famous chapter, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter. You've probably heard it at like a hundred weddings. Um, but his emphasis there actually is, he says, if I speak in tongues and I do miracles and I do prophecy, if I have all these gifts of the Spirit, but I don't have love, then it's all worthless. And so he's saying, hey, gifts of the Spirit are good and fine, but they're not primary. Love is primary. Love is a primary evidence of the Spirit in believers. And we know from studying Galatians a few weeks ago that love is actually a fruit of the Spirit. That we get that love from Him. Right? And so Paul's teaching us here, like, when it comes to the Spirit, fruit is greater than gifts. Right? Both important, both part of the process, but in terms of evidence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in our life is a greater evidence than the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we might have or not have. So, it's not primary. Second thing we see here from this passage is that tongues is not a universal gift of the Spirit. He says, he has this whole list of questions, right? These rhetorical questions that he asks after he makes the list. He says, are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all have gifts of tongues? And he asks all these different questions. And the implied answer is no. Because he just said earlier in chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit gives various gifts to various people. Meaning, not everyone has the same gift. Nor does everyone have one gift. Right? He gives different gifts to different people because we're different members of the body. And as each one of us has a different gift and we serve one another, the body takes care of each other and it all works out together as one. So nowhere in the Bible does it say that every believer should speak in tongues, nor does it say that it is an evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is a gift that he gives to some. 
but not to all. It's not universal. Further, if we now go over maybe a page, if you need to, to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So he did 12, we did 13. Now 14, he keeps talking about this in regards to the church as a whole. And he talks about how to regulate tongues in public worship, in corporate worship together. And in the first 25 verses of chapter 14, Paul tells us that it's um, better to use our gifts, our spiritual gifts, to build up the body, to build up the church, rather than building up ourselves and just making it about us and our spiritual experience. And then he goes on to say that the gift of tongues in particular, that it builds up ourself more than it builds up others. That's really about us. It emphasizes personal worship over corporate worship. Still not a bad thing, because it's a gift of the Spirit. He says, but there's a certain way that you use it that is most effective. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26. This is where he really gets into it. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, let all things be done for building up. There it is again. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So again, he emphasizes this idea of let all things be for the building up of the church. That that's the purpose of the gifts, is to build one another up in corporate worship times like we're having this morning. And then he says, tongues should only be used in public corporate worship if there's an interpreter, so they can tell us, hey, what did that just say, so that we can all be built up by what was said. He says, if there's not an interpreter, keep silent. And just speak to yourself and speak to God. Use tongues as a personal prayer language between you and the Lord. But it's not necessarily meant for corporate worship unless it can build up others. And so he regulates it here for how we use that particular gift. And again, not emphasizing it, but kind of de-emphasizing it. But then he ends with this, and this is, this is equally important. That tongues is not forbidden, but it's not priority. Look at verse 39. He says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order, right? So he's saying again, the highest priority, the highest desire should be prophecy or teaching or any gifts that help us understand and follow the word of God. He says, but Tongues are not completely forbidden either, as long as they are practiced in order, as he just described, with an interpreter and so on, to build up the body. And Paul takes us to a really personal place in verse 19, where he says this himself. Look at this. He says, Nevertheless, in church, I, Paul, would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct, to teach, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, putting the emphasis on the teaching and the word of God rather than the, the spiritual experience. So speaking in tongues is a gift of the Spirit. Please hear me today. It is not wrong. We do not think that it's a bad thing or that it has ceased in any way. It's in the Bible. It's from the Spirit. But it's not a primary evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. 
So that's the first non-evidence. Second one is um, to be slain in the Spirit. Now, that might be a new phrase for some of you if you're new to church, or especially if this is maybe your first time coming this morning. So let me give a definition so we kind of all get on the same page, because some of y'all are like, I have no idea what that is, okay? So to be slain in the Spirit, this practice is when a spiritual leader lays hands on a a worshiper, usually on their forehead, or sometimes they just kind of wave their arm over them, and the worshiper falls backwards, unconscious usually, helpless to the floor and kind of loses control of their body. And the idea is that in this experience, the, the Holy Spirit is, is coming and the presence of the Spirit is so strong and so powerful that that person can no longer stand and is kind of blown back, if you will, um, by the presence of the Spirit. Now, for those who practice this or who believe in this, if we were to ask them, hey, what scripture would you point us to to show that this is a biblical practice? Many of them would first point to 2 Chronicles 5.14. So let's take a look at that this morning. 2 Chronicles 5.14 says this. It says, So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, this comes out of the scene where Solomon and Israel are dedicating the new temple to God. Right? That they've built this great temple for, to be God's house. They're dedicating it to the Lord. They're doing this big dedication service. And in that moment, God himself comes down in the form of a cloud and he fills the temple. And his power and his presence are so strong in that place that it says the priest could not stand to minister. Now those who talk about being slain in the spirit would interpret that to mean that they couldn't physically stand, that they fell down helpless in the presence of this cloud of God's presence and power. However, if we look back at the Hebrew, the original language of the text, the word translated stand there does not mean to stand upright like we do. It actually means to to take your place or to to maintain a place of service. And so what they're really saying is that when when God's presence came in and he filled the temple, they were doing their little dedication service, and God's like, hey, 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 I got this, right? And the priest, like the, the power and the presence of God was so full in the room that the priest couldn't even stay there and continue doing the dedication service. They had to leave because God was doing his thing, and they had to get out of the way, Right? That's what it's really describing here. It's not that they fell down to the ground helpless or unconscious. Furthermore, we always have to interpret the Bible in the correct context and in regards to the correct covenant. This is an Old Testament passage, which is still the word of God, but it's an Old Testament descriptive event. Meaning it's a a historical account of what happened, but it is not a New Testament prescriptive example of worship. God's not saying, hey, this happened to the priest, now you need to go do the same thing. He's not calling us to seek this type of experience. He's just saying, hey, one time this is what happened when I showed up. And so we don't need to make this a thing that we're trying to chase after. So others then would say, okay, if it's not that, then what are some New Testament verses that could justify being slain in the Spirit? And the first one that they might point to is Luke 5.8. Luke 5.8 says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now in this scene, Peter does indeed drop to the ground in front of Jesus, but he's dropping more to his knees in this kind of conscious, willful act of contrition. 
In the presence of Jesus, he's recognizing his own sin, and he's bowing down before Jesus, asking for forgiveness and seeking help from the Savior. He's not falling backwards unconscious because of the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit's not even mentioned anywhere in this passage. Other verses that they might point to, Matthew 28, 4. It says, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They, they fell down like they were dead. This is the guards at the tomb after Jesus is resurrected and the angel shows up and they're seeing the angel of God and they're like so freaked out that they fall down to the ground. Another verse is Revelation 117. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is John in Revelation where he's seen the, the vision of the resurrected Jesus. And he's so in awe and so in fear of this holy God in front of him that he, again, falls to the ground in fear and submission. Now, a couple of things about these two instances that I think will help us understand what's going on here. Number one, these events were the result of a physical or visible manifestation of the power and the presence of God. This wasn't just a pastor on a stage or in a room. This was God showing up in supernatural form. That's why they fell to the ground. Secondly, these were extremely rare instances. These are like once-in-a-lifetime experiences, if that. These were not experiences that were meant to have every week or every month on a regular basis of worship. And furthermore, these were not experiences that anybody sought out. They weren't looking for this. God showed up in the room and forced this upon them with his power and his presence. So again, this is not a prescriptive thing that we're supposed to be chasing after as New Testament believers. There are times where we can be overcome by the presence of God or by a spiritual encounter with God. That's totally legitimate. God still does that. But it's not necessarily evidence or proof of the Spirit. I'm pretty sure when the guards fell down in front of the angels, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in the Bible does it point to the fact that they were saved in any way. So it's not necessarily evidence or proof that the Spirit is there. Some other verses that can help us with this. Look at Matthew uh, 16, 4. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. So right here, Jesus says that actually seeking such signs as these can actually reveal a lack of true faith. Because I need that experience. I need that next emotional thing, that next spiritual encounter in order to prove to me that I still have faith. Rather than just believing that I have faith in Christ, regardless of that experience. Another, Matthew 24, 24 says... For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So he's saying these types of signs, these spiritual experiences and encounters can be the Holy Spirit, but also they can be used by false teachers to lead people away from God. That such spiritual experiences are no guarantee that it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit at work. It might be some other spirit. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute as well. So the second one is non-evidence is to be slain in the Spirit. The third non-evidence I want to touch on is emotionalism. 
or some would call hyper-emotionalism. These kind of out-of-control emotional experiences that we sometimes see in worship gatherings. And the reason that I struggle with that as a evidence of the Holy Spirit is going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul's laying out how the Spirit works in corporate worship. He says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is, again, this is the same section where Paul was just saying, like, here's how the Spirit works in corporate worship. And he reminds us, he's not a God of disorder or chaos or confusion. He's a God of peace. That in those moments, we're not to be ruled by spiritual emotion. Now, also, let me kind of balance that. Emotion is not bad. Emotion is a good gift that God has given us to get to experience Him and His presence with us and to express our worship back to Him. Emotion is a vital component to who we are in Christ. But emotion is not meant to control us in worship. It's meant to connect us in worship to God. As believers, we should be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by our emotions. We use our emotions to connect to God, but not to be controlled by them, especially in an out-of-control or chaotic way, because the Spirit brings peace, not emotional chaos. Another verse that helps us with this one is 1 John 4, 1 through 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John's warning us here. He's saying like, hey, don't believe in every spirit. In other words, not every spiritual experience you have, not every spiritual emotion that you feel is necessarily from the Lord. That sometimes these can come from other evil spirits in the world. And so he says, test them. Test the spirits. And we test them by looking at where are they pointing me. He says, if they're pointing me to Jesus, if they're confessing that Jesus is Lord, he's the most important thing, worship him, then that's the Holy Spirit. But if they're pointing to anything else that Jesus is not Lord, then that's not the Holy Spirit. If they're pointing to themselves, if they're saying, yeah, Come, be a part of my thing and follow me and my church and my movement and God, you can only get to God through me and through the power that he's given me. That's not the Holy Spirit. If it has to go through a person or through a human means, that's not the Holy Spirit. He says here that it's actually the spirit of the Antichrist. Literally, that's the spirit of not Christ. The opposite of that. And Satan will use these types of spiritual experiences to actually move us away from God in three different ways. First, he'll make us distracted. Because we can get into this, this rut of seeking spiritual experience after spiritual experience after spiritual experience, and we're distracted from actually just pursuing a relationship with God himself. It's an ongoing, enduring relationship. He can also use these things to deceive us. He offers us this, this fleeting emotional high to get to that mountaintop. And we chase after that rather than just resting in the eternal hope 
that we have in Jesus. I don't have to prove it to myself every time. Jesus has guaranteed this is who I am and this is what I have. Also, the spirit, false spirits can bring us to disillusionment. Because you see, I've seen, I've seen the cycle too many times. We do the emotion, we do the emotion, we do the emotion, but every time it wears off. And then we're just as lost and just as empty and just as lacking as we were before. And pretty soon we start to think, well, maybe this whole God thing isn't real. Because I feel it, and then I don't feel it, and then I feel it, and then I don't feel it. Maybe this whole God thing is just a farce. And he gets us moving away from the Lord rather than towards the Lord. All because we're chasing an emotional high rather than an enduring relationship. Non-evidences of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, as a little boy, I used to love to watch magic shows. Like, that was just like, it was just so intriguing to me, and, and uh, I'll show my age this morning a little bit, but I remember, my, I remember watching the amazing David Copperfield, right? Everybody remember, like, he, he walked through the Great Wall of China, and he hovered over the Grand Canyon and just did the whole thing, but the one I remember the most was when he made the Statue of Liberty disappear, like made it disappear, live audience right there on the ground in front of it, TV audience of millions of people, statues gone. Now, in our, in our right minds, we understand, right, that you cannot make a 310-foot, 225-ton statue just disappear. And yet, he did it right there in front of our eyes. And time and time again, he would give clear examples. He would demonstrate clear examples of his magic. But in reality, those examples never proved that he actually possessed magical powers. Right? The same thing is true for spiritual experiences. Examples like speaking in tongues, being slain in the Spirit, emotionalism, all these can be examples of the Holy Spirit's power, but they're not necessarily evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence. Because they could be something else, disguising themselves. And so we need to be careful that although these, these are legitimate things at times, God can use these types of things to reach us and to work in our lives. They are not required as evidence to prove that the Holy Spirit is present. And sometimes they actually misdirect us away from the Holy Spirit instead. So don't mistake examples of the Spirit's power for evidence of His presence. So if those are the non-evidences, things that are not necessarily proof of the Holy Spirit, what are some biblical evidences of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you five this morning that we see in Scripture. Number one, spiritual fruit. I think this is the most kind of important one. This is the most powerful one that we see, I think, regularly in our lives is spiritual fruit. This comes from Galatians chapter 5. So if you want to see that, you can flip over a couple pages to the right there in your Bible. You'll find Galatians chapter 5. Verse 22 through 23 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, a couple things here about this passage. Number one, notice it says that it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's His fruit. 
It's not our fruit. I cannot make this fruit. The Holy Spirit makes this fruit. Okay? It's His fruit. He produces it in our lives as we walk with Him. And so when we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, He comes to live inside of us, we can be guaranteed that over time, He will produce His fruit in our lives. And Him producing that fruit, although it takes time, it's not done overnight, but Him continually producing that fruit in our lives is evidence, it's proof that we have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, notice here that fruit is singular. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we studied Galatians. That all of these examples here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, they're not all individual fruits. They're all part of one fruit of the Spirit. Together, collectively. They grow together. As the Spirit's moving in us, He's growing us in all of them at the same time. But I think sometimes as believers, we tend to think that like one or two of them are growing and the other ones aren't. And we're like, well, I'm doing really good in love, but I'm not doing so great at patience. And we're trying to do like this whole like balancing act. And if we see one or just two of them growing without the others, that's actually probably a good sign that that's not the Holy Spirit. That there's some other thing happening that's parading as fruit of the Spirit, but it's not actually fruit of the Spirit. A couple of ways that can happen. First is to, for us to be doing it in our own self-righteousness and just kind of muscling it, right? Like, like I know I'm str- I really want to be better at loving people, and so I'm going to put in the work, and I'm going to make the effort, and I'm going to do the things, and I'm going to show that I can grow in this. Meanwhile, all the other ones are stagnant because it's just me just doing this self-righteous thing to try to make it look like I'm more loving. And then we start to measure everything else, everybody else and all the other fruit against our fruit, right? We're like, yeah, I know, I know I'm an impatient person sometimes, but that's only because I have self-control and nobody else does and they can't keep up with me. And so they just frustrate and I get impatient with them and the whole thing, right? Because like, I got my piece of fruit that I'm like glorifying here and measuring everybody else against that one. But it's not actual fruit, it's just me self-righteously trying to do my own thing. Another way that spiritual fruit can be deceiving or, mis- or parading is uh, just through natural disposition. That sometimes we, do, we just have natural personality traits that look like spiritual fruit, right? So somebody might be like, yeah, you know, you're, just, you're such a gentle and kind person and you're just always so peaceful. Reality is you're just, you're just introverted, <laughs> and, and you're quiet and you kind of you hang in the back, but inside... Man, you are worrying, and you are judgmental, and you are like, you're feeling all that inside, but you're not saying it because, you know, you, then you'd have to talk to people. And so, so it looks like spiritual fruit, but it's actually just your personality just kind of parading as spiritual fruit. A third way that this can happen is through situational factors, like stage of life or relationship status or or certain health factors or wealth factors, like, you know, you're, you're just such a joyous, such a joyful person. Yeah, it's because nothing's blowing up in your life right now. But as soon as the big health thing comes next year, that's all going away. The joy doesn't last when the trial comes. That's not spiritual fruit. Or, you know, like, you're, just, you're, really, you're a really loving person. You're so good at loving others and just really pouring yourself out. Yeah, it's because you're not married yet. And you don't have kids. <laughs> And they're not sucking the love out of you every minute of every day, right? 
And so like, it's easy to go and love the people you only see for like 10 minutes a day. But when you have to love every moment of every day, that's different. That's spiritual fruit. That's God filling you up. That's not a reflection of our house, by the way. I was just, <laughs> just giving an example for some of y'all. No, or just kindness, right? Like, again, you're a very kind person. You're very, like, helping others and all that. But, but you, at this point in your life, you haven't walked through grief or loss or abuse or like you haven't had that pain rock your world yet, and so the world still looks like this great positive place to you. Again, none of these are bad things. I'm just saying they're not necessarily fruit of the Spirit. Because if the fruit's growing, it's all growing together. Maybe slow, right? Any gardeners in the house will tell you, like, when you, when you prune the branch, the fruit has, takes a while to grow back. It doesn't happen overnight. But it's growing. Look at... John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we abide in the Spirit, we will bear much fruit. It's a promise. Jesus said it right here. It might take time. It will take time. The fruit doesn't come immediately, but it will come if we are in the Holy Spirit. And this, therefore, is the greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That little by little, God is growing us into the image of his Son through spiritual fruit. Second evidence this morning, though, is spiritual leading. So go ahead and flip over to Romans 8 now. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Romans 8. That's to the left, a couple pages, if you're currently in Galatians. So Romans chapter 8, looking at verse 14, he says this. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right, so he says, if you're a son of God, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you will be led by the Spirit of God. But here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit leads you, he doesn't just lead you anywhere or to anything. He leads you in a very purposeful way. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This will be on the screen for you. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what he's saying there is if the Holy Spirit is actually leading you, if it's the Holy Spirit doing the leading, then he's going to lead you to be transformed into the image of Christ. That no matter what he's doing, he's always leading us to become more and more like Jesus. He says one degree at a time, step by step, piece by piece, he leads me to be more like Jesus. Oftentimes as a pastor, I'll have people come up and and tell me that, you know, I've been praying, I feel like God's really leading me to do this, or he's leading me to do that. And that's great, man. Like, pray and ask the Lord, that's good. But here's the problem. If this or that that you think he's leading you to is actually taking you further away from God, that is not the Holy Spirit leading you. It's not. I don't care how much more money it is. I don't care if it gets you closer to family. I don't, care what el- like, I don't care what else it gets you. If it's not getting you closer to Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit leading you. It's something else. Somebody else. The Spirit only leads us to what makes us 
more like Jesus. The Spirit only leads us to what makes us more like Jesus. And that's how you know. That's an evidence of the Holy Spirit because He's constantly pointing you, He's constantly leading you, He's constantly taking you to the places that aren't always fun and aren't always easy and don't always make the most sense, but they make you more like Jesus. That's how He leads. So spiritual leading is number two. Third evidence this morning is spiritual assurance. Spiritual assurance comes from verse 15, right there in Romans 8. Verse 15 says, For you, do not receive this, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So he says, you did, you did not receive a spirit of slavery. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to fear what's coming at the end of the days. Right? You no longer have to fear the wrath of God because you have been saved by Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. You're no longer stuck in that slavery of sin and fear. It's not that. Say that this morning. Say, not that. It's not that. He says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. No longer slave to sin. You are a son of God the Father. So you can be sure that He will provide for you. He will love you. He will protect you. Because He's a good Father. No matter what comes. Listen to this later on in chapter 8, verse 38. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can be sure. We can be spiritually sure that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Because we have His Spirit living inside us. And He's never going to let us go. Fourth evidence is spiritual identity. Again, just following Romans 8 here, look at verse 16. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So he says right here, The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, bears witness that we are children of God. That God Himself says, This is who you are. And if God says it, we know that it's true. He declares to us, you are my children. This is your new spiritual identity. And if we're children, he says, then we are heirs. That we belong to God forever. We will always be his. And we will always be in his presence, in his kingdom, in his family. We are no longer enemies, we are sons. And therefore, we have a new identity in Christ through the Spirit of God. And that identity is, a, is an evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lastly, the, f- the fifth evidence is spiritual endurance. Romans eight seventeen, next verse there says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
provided that we suffer with him. So let me just be honest with you this morning. Having the Holy Spirit does not guarantee that your life is going to be roses. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that all the trials go away and all the problems go away. In fact, I'll just be real honest this morning. Following Jesus is probably going to get you more. <laughs> it's probably going to bring more trials and more suffering and more struggle at times. Because guess what? Our Savior suffered and struggled and went through trials his whole life. And if that's who we're following, we're going to experience the same thing. But here's the glory of the Holy Spirit. He says, that, provide that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. That as we're walking through that suffering, that we no longer have to do it alone. The Holy Spirit gives us strength and he gives us power and he helps us to endure through the suffering all the way to the other side so we can experience the glory of God, both in this life and in the next. He will not let us fall in our suffering. He will help us endure through it. This is an evidence. This is how you know you have the Spirit. Because with the Spirit, suffering doesn't shake our faith. It strengthens it. Suffering doesn't make us doubt and question and walk away and quit God. It makes us say, oh, I need Him all the more. And it strengthens our faith as we press into the Lord and He helps us endure through it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's an evidence that he's moving and working, that he takes you through to the other side. These are evidences, true biblical evidences of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know? How do we truly know if we have the Spirit? It's not through emotion. It's not through spiritual experiences or stories those aren't bad things. Please hear me. I mean, I, we just heard a great story this morning from this baptismal tank of how God changed a heart and changed a life. Stories are powerful and they're good and they show us how great our God is. But they're not the evidence that we anchor our hearts in. The evidence is in God's word. It's the, he tells us this is how you know. So, do you have enough evidence of the Spirit in your life to prove that you're a follower of Jesus? Do you have enough evidence that I just talked about, those five things in your life to prove that you are indeed a follower of Jesus? In other words, if you went to court today and they had to prove that you were a Christian, is there enough evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life to prove you guilty of being a Christian? Ask yourself that question we started with. Where do I see it? Where do I see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Now, I want us to close today in a little bit different way than we normally do. We're not going to sing today. I want us just to take some time and just reflectively pray over what we've just heard. And just let the Lord talk to us about this for a couple minutes here. So if you would, just kind of just bow your heads for a moment. And just kind of, I'm going to give you some prompts. I'm going to give you some questions to kind of pray through. Just take this moment between you and the Lord to see what he might want to say to you in regards to this. First question is this, do I see any evidence at all? When you look at your heart, when you look at your life, do you see any evidence at all that the Holy Spirit is there? If the answer is no, then right now is your chance. 
Right now is your chance to repent of your sin and to be saved by Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. We're all rebellious against God. We all have violated his word and deserve his wrath. But he loved us so much, he sent his own son, Jesus, to come to earth and to be born as a man to live a perfect and sinless life, to go to the cross and to take that sin debt that we owe to take our death on himself to pay for our sin to go into the grave and then three days later he rose back to life he proved that he was God and he said if you will confess your sin and turn and follow me I will forgive you and I will save you and I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit do you have that gift today see the evidence if not take a moment right now pray repent of your sin and ask God to save you if your answer was yes and you do see evidence of the Holy Spirit ask yourself are they the right evidences when you think back on your salvation experience or even your life since then what kind of evidences are you basing your confidence on If it's only experiences and emotions, you might need to reassess. I want you to pray right now and just ask God. Say, God, reveal, reveal any true and false evidences in my life right now. Ask him to show you. Just pray that prayer. Ask God, show me the true and the false evidences in my life today. And then if you do see true evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life, I want you to take a moment right now and just praise God for that. Just thank him. Tell him how grateful you are that he has given you the Holy Spirit and that he's growing you in Christ. And just praise him and give him glory for what he's doing. Praise the Lord right now. And then lastly this morning, I want you to just ask him. Let's all do this together. Let's ask him to anchor our hearts and our faith in the true evidences of the Spirit. Not the ones that will come and go with the, with the emotion in the moment, but to anchor our hearts and our lives and our faith in the true evidence of the Holy Spirit so that it will carry us all the way to the end. Pray and ask God for that right now. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much, Lord, that you are a God of order and peace and clarity. God, that you give us these foundational evidences, Lord, that we don't have to wonder, we don't have to worry if we have your spirit living inside of us. It's not based on an up and down emotion or, Lord, it's based on clear evidence of your spirit moving in our lives over time. God, thank you for that. God, I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, again, who does not yet have that, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts right now, Lord, call them to yourselves Reveal your truth to them, God, and let them respond with repentance. Let them respond in faith. God, save them today. Give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you in the clear evidence that you give us, regardless of how we feel. All the glory and honor and praise goes to you, God all this in Christ's name.